Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Okay, so last week we followed the disciples through the arrest and the trials of Jesus. So we looked at how did the disciples perform, and the, the summary is not well. Uh, they're 0 for 12. Everybody fell away, all 12 of them. And two different groups. We have Judas in a category by himself. He made this very calculated, cold uh, decision to betray Jesus for money. And his falling away from what we know, and we're, I'm certainly not, not God, but from what we can tell in reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it seems like his falling away is permanent, and he's, he's out. The other 11, it's very different. They fall away as well, but their falling away is temporary. It's just over the course of that, that Easter weekend, and theirs really seems to be rooted in a lack of preparation. They just weren't ready. What Jesus says about them is your, your spirit is willing. You have this desire to, to be true, to, to stay faithful to me, but your flesh is weak. There's no resolve behind that, no intention behind that. And so when the pressure of him getting arrested comes, they all fall away. Peter follows. And then when the pressure comes from him being confronted about his relationship with Jesus, he denies. So again, it was a complete wash for all of the disciples. They all fall away. And we talked last week about the importance of what it looks like for us to keep watch and to pray the two things that he told them to do in preparation for that night, and, and they didn't. They, they took a nap instead, and so they weren't ready um, when, the, when the heat got turned up. So today what we're going to do is follow Jesus through that same set of events. We're going to get Jesus in Gethsemane arrested in the trial. So obviously there's a lot that we're not going to talk about because we did last week with the disciples. We just want to focus on Jesus and what he is doing. If your Bible has red letters, you'll see as we go there's fewer and fewer of those red letters. So we're going to start in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. That's Jesus and the 11 disciples. Judas has already left. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, Jesus went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The main thing I want us to see from this section in Gethsemane is I want us to, to recognize Jesus. We'll just call it his emotional state or his state of being. Mark uses words. He says he's, he's deeply distressed. He's, he's troubled. Those are very intense words. It's he's surrounded by sorrow. He's in the grip of of terror and distress. Those are, it's, it's a very intense picture about himself. Jesus says, my soul is in agony to the point of death. And that's not, that's not pretend. That's not, that's not a theater production. That's not just hyperbole. That's, it's legitimately Jesus saying, this is how I feel. He's in excruciating 
agony, and it's important for us to recognize that. For some of us, that's not comfortable because that doesn't sound very divine, but it's where he is in that moment. Remember, part of that this is a mystery. One of the truths about Jesus is he's fully human and fully divine at the same time. And in the garden, we see that. And if we press even further, why is he in agony? He's known this day was coming. We, he's predicted it at least three times. Three times in Mark, he says, this is going to happen to me. So it seems like he could kind of be preparing himself. I mean, nobody wants to be arrested and tortured and killed. But his response, if that's what it is, Maybe that's a little harder for us to swallow, but I think there's more going on. You see it particularly on the cross when his last words in Mark are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's really what's going on. This is something else we can't understand. God is one substance, one being in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. And again, that's, that's a mystery. For us, you're one or you're three. You can't be one and three, but somehow God is. One substance or one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And different metaphors are used, and they all fall short. Uh, a famous one from uh, a, a, an ancient one, I guess I should say, is, is the idea of a shamrock. There's one flower and three leaves. That really gets at the oneness of God. And one that's a little bit more modern is H2O, is steam or ice or water, but it's still H2O, and that kind of gets at the three in us. But both of those, actually, they're flawed analogies. They both emphasize one element of the Trinity, but not both. And we don't have one that emphasizes both. Again, it's, it's kind of, there's mystery there for us. And so for us, when we're thinking about the garden, why does that matter? The Father and the Son have never been separated. They're one being, and somehow they're going to be separated at Jesus' death. He, he takes on our sin, and the penalty for sin is separation from God, which ultimately leads to death. That's the result because God is a source of life. And so if you're separated from life, then death is what results. But it's that separation that is causing Jesus so much agony. That's why he's in this excruciating pain. He's contemplating being separated from his Father for the first and the only time ever ever, ever. And again, we, like, we can't, you think of whoever it is that you love the most, th this isn't that. This is one being, one essence, somehow mysteriously being separated. And again, we can't fathom what that is because we, we can't get our mind around the intimacy of the relationship, the unity of father and son. So to think about them separated Again, that's very difficult for us to even begin to understand. That's, what, that's where the agony is. Nobody wants to be betrayed. Nobody wants to be tortured. Nobody wants to have nails driven through their wrists. No, that's, yes, horrible. What, what, the agony that you see, my soul is in agony to the point of death. Why have you forsaken me? That's not about the physical pain that he's going through. It's about this relational separation from the Father. And it's important, I, I just want us to get that. Because as we move ahead, you'll see his demeanor is completely different. And the change, it's because of the prayer. We'll come back to the prayer at the end. Uh, we'll, we'll skip it for now, but we'll circle back. But that prayer leads to what we'll see at his arrest and these two trials. Someone who's at complete peace, who has a total assurance about the future. Even when all of this wicked, evil stuff is happening to him. Verse 42, just as he was speaking, 
Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords, clubs, sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So what I see, Jesus is arrested 100%. I see him in many ways as surrendering as well. He doesn't put up a fight. And when we know from another gospel, it's Peter who uses the sword. When he pulls out a sword to fight, Jesus says, don't. That's not, that's not what we're doing. What they're doing is wrong. They have plenty of opportunities if they wanted to arrest me to arrest me. But that's, at this point, he, that's neither here nor there. Jesus, according to Isaiah 53 He's being numbered with the transgressors. That's the scripture that's being fulfilled. And he says that this is what we're doing. And he allows himself to be arrested. And John, he says, I could call down a legion of angels to fight for me if I wanted to. Yes, he's being arrested, but he's going voluntarily with this group. And so they take him for the Jewish trial. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Then he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against Jesus, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against Jesus. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Or that's another way of saying the Son of God. I am, said Jesus, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So Jesus is taken to Caiaphas. That's the name of the high priest. He's taken to his house for a trial. And that's probably in quotes. It's, not a, it's in a regular trial at best. They don't follow any of the normal rules for a trial. And it's, they're, they're, they're not really interested in finding out the truth. According to Mark, they've already decided that they want Jesus dead. They just need a charge that can stick. The Jews are not allowed to execute, so they don't have the ability to execute a criminal. So they need a charge that they can then flip to the Romans who will or who can execute him. So they're not, they're not interested in finding out any truth at this point. They're interested in something that they can make stick to Jesus that they can then use to get the Romans to crucify him. That's, that's the end game. Uh, you have to have two witnesses agree on testimony, testify against you in order to be found guilty, and they can't find two that agree. They're all disagreeing. And so finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, he just looks directly at Jesus and says, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Up to that point, Jesus hasn't said anything. That's another fulfillment of Isaiah 53. 
as a sheep before its shears is silent, so this son of this suffering servant won't open his mouth. And Jesus, though, at this point, he decides to answer, and he answers very directly. He says, I am. And then he explains his understanding of the Messiah using two verses from the Old Testament, one from Daniel 7 and one from Psalm 110. Now, to say that you're the Messiah is actually not blasphemy. The Jews thought the Messiah would be a very special person, but just a person, not divine. So claiming to be the Messiah, and lots of people did, that, that, would not, that wouldn't get you killed. That wasn't a capital crime. But claiming to be God obviously is. And if you look at that Daniel 7 passage, you can see there's lots of, lots of divine type language in there. Claiming for yourself privileges or prerogatives that belong to God, that's blasphemy. And that's what Jesus does. He says, yeah, that, that's, gonna, that's me. And then he says to them, y'all, this is how y'all are going to see me. I don't think he's talking about his second coming. They're all dead before that happens. I think he's talking about his resurrection. So the idea is the, that, the, that God would never allow the Messiah, his chosen one, to be captured and to be killed. He's not going to let that happen. His job is to deliver his people. So he's certainly not going to allow him to be captured and killed by the enemy. When Jesus dies on the cross, that's seen as a, as a repudiation of everything Jesus has said about himself. Well, he must not be the Messiah. He's certainly not the son of God because God would never let that happen to one of his people. It, no way. So then the resurrection is his vindication. That's the father's way of saying, actually, he, 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 he is the Messiah and he is my son. And this resurrection demonstrates that. It proves that. The resurrection, Jesus is stepping into his kingship. Remember when uh, Satan takes Jesus out in the, into the desert at the very beginning of his ministry to tempt him. And he says, takes him up to a high place and he says, you see all these kingdoms? They're all mine. And I can give them to whoever I want to. And Jesus doesn't challenge him on that. He doesn't say you're wrong. He doesn't say they're mine. He's, he doesn't challenge him on that. Satan does have, he, he's a king at that point in many ways. And Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, overthrows Satan and his kingdom is established through the cross and, the resur- and his resurrection. We got, there's a new king in town. And his resurrection is vindication and validation of that. So that's what Jesus is saying. Y'all are going to see all this. And they, they, they could if they had eyes to see it. He's resurrected right there in Jerusalem, spends 40 days in, in and around. And then he's asc- he ascends into heaven. Most of them miss it, but there's opportunity there. So they're, they're obviously, at that point, they've got what they need. He did, that is blasphemy if it's not true. I mean, he said, yes, I'm the son of God. And so if, that, if that's not true, then yes, that is blasphemy. So they've got what they need. And so they rush over to Pilate. Verse, uh, chapter 15, very early in the morning. So Roman trials started at dawn. So that's why they start so early. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they, they uh, bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. 
What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So again, Jews can't execute. They want Jesus dead, so they need a charge that the the Romans will be excited about. They don't care about blasphemy. That's, That's a religious issue, and they're not interested. Treason, that, yes, that's a political issue, and they're very much interested. So Pilate is the governor of the area, Judea. He's the governor of that area. And probably the best way of understanding, he's not better or worse than any other governor. He's just typical of a governor. He's, he, he has power, and he wants to keep power. He doesn't necessarily care about the people that he's ruling. He doesn't necessarily care about the Jews, but a major part of his job is to keep them under control. If they start rebelling, then his boss is going to say, you're not doing a good job. Your job is to keep the peace, and if you're not doing that, then you're gone. So he does have incentive to keep them happy, but it's not from, it's not from any place in his heart. It's, again, it's just expedient. He wants to keep his job. He wants to stay in power. And the way to do that is to make sure the people who he is, he is leading or ruling, they all, they're all more or less under control. So again, he, he's not better or worse than probably any typical governor at the time. And again, doesn't, doesn't have any affinity for the Jews. He's not a, he's not a follower of God. He's not interested in Jesus as a Messiah, none of that. For him, this is all about, this is Passover. I've got thousands of extra Jews here in this city. It's a powder keg. How do I keep it from exploding? That's all he's trying to do. How do I keep this thing from exploding? Why? Because I don't want to lose my job. And so the the religious leaders bring Jesus to him. They say, he's committing treason. He said, he's the king of the Jews. And you may remember, like we've been looking at Mark. He never says that. But he does say he's the Messiah, which is basically the same thing. In the mind of most people at the time, the Messiah is a political figure, a political military leader who's going to lead the Jewish people to freedom, which means overthrowing the Roman government. And so, yeah, he never says the words, he's the king of the Jews, but saying he's the Messiah is basically saying the same thing. So that's the charge that they bring, which would be treasonous, and obviously Pilate wouldn't like that. He's already got one guy in jail, Barabbas, for doing something similar, trying to lead a, a revolt, some kind of a rebellion. Would Typical thing, his job would be to squash those. And so he says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies very ambiguously, very enigmatic response. You say so. It's really a yes, but kind of answer. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews, but not the way that you think I'm the king of the Jews. It, it's neither an affirmation or a denial. Again, it's kind of splitting the difference. Yes, but not in the way that you're thinking. And Pilate, shrewdly, he's able to pick up and, and realize that the religious leaders are bringing him here, not necessarily because he's genuinely a threat to, to me or the Roman government, but because they're envious of him. They just want to get rid of him. And so he goes around them. He goes straight to the people, and apparently there was this practice or tradition where the governor would let a prisoner go during Passover. And so he says, would y'all want me to let 
the king of the Jews go? And they say, no, we want Barabbas, who actually is guilty of all the things that Jesus is being charged with. He actually was someone who led a, re- a revolt or a rebellion. And so probably he's kind of like a folk hero for the crowd. He stood up to the government. So they asked for him. The chief priest has stirred up the crowd to ask for him instead of Jesus. And to be really clear, Pilate has authority. He can let everybody go. He's got the authority to, to free any and everybody. So he doesn't, it's not like, well, they asked for this one guy and so my hands are tied. If he wanted to, he could have let Jesus go and Barabbas go. He has the authority unilaterally to do that. But again, what he's, what he's trying to do is, how do I keep the peace? How do, I make, how do I keep this thing from blowing up? And in his mind, the calculation is, well, I'll release Barabbas and I'll have Jesus handed over to be flogged, which is a brutal form of torture that softens you up before crucifixion. And we'll talk about the crucifixion next week. The thing that I want us to see, and as we read that, you again, the, the number of words Jesus says just get fewer and fewer and fewer. In the garden, he's in agony. He says, you know, my soul is at the point of death. And then when all of these events begin to unfold, when he's betrayed by one of his closest friends, when he's denied by one of his closest friends, when he's deserted by his other 10 closest friends, when he's railroaded through this Jewish trial, when he's put on trial before Pilate, when he's mocked, blindfolded, beaten, when he's to be flogged, it's a, it's a whip with bits of metal and bone at the end of it. When he's, when he's flogged, all of that, what we see from him is really not much. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't fight back. Like Think about it, any of you, if you've ever been accused of something that you didn't do, what your response is to that. His is, doesn't open his mouth. There seems to be, a, I'll just say peace, this level of peace and assurance. Because of what he does in the garden, that three hours of wrestling with God, and we just get a snapshot. We get two sentences of three hours, and it's intense. Luke says he prays to the point that he sweats blood. I've never done anything. That, I don't know if you have. Probably not. The, the level of intensity in the garden, it's difficult for us to fathom. Again, to, to, to be praying with such a level of, of fervor that you're actually sweating blood. Three hours of that. And he comes out of that. And then again, there's this peace and this assurance. He surrendered to the will of the Father in the garden. So when all of this wickedness is happening to him, he's, he, he just... He just kind of moves through it. It's not that it doesn't touch him at all. I think he feels every bit of it. But his heart is settled because he's wrestled through things with the Father. And that's what I want us to focus on. I want us to focus on that prayer as we close. We've got a couple of minutes before we take communion. And I want you thinking about that prayer. We all, I I would hope, want to get to the end. We want to get to a place where we can say, yet not my will, but your will. We want to get there. But oftentimes we short-circuit the process. We just say those words, but we, we haven't wrestled. We haven't worked through the things that are actually in our heart. If you want to get there where you can say, not my will, but your will, and truly mean it, believe it, be able to be betrayed, denied, deserted, falsely accused, mocked, beaten. If you want to be able to experience those things with some level of peace, And you can use those as metaphors, for sure. 
If you want to be able to experience those difficulties, tribulation, testing, trials, and walk through that with peace, we want to be able to say, God, not my will, but yours. There's a few things that we need first. One is we have to actually trust God. You're not going to surrender to somebody that you don't trust. Jesus addresses God as Abba, Father. That word Abba is it, it's daddy, but it's not, it's not a childish word. It communicates intimacy and depth of affection. That's who Jesus is approaching and wrestling with. We all intellectually know God as our Father. Like you, you say that. Probably when you pray, that's what you say. Most people address God that way. Is that depth of relationship there for you and for me? Is that affection and intimacy there for you and for me? Do I actually trust him enough to surrender in the areas that are most important to me? If it's something I don't care about, for sure. But what about the things that are the most important to me in my own life and the lives of people that I love the most? Am I willing in those areas to surrender to him or not? You're not going to. I'm not going to if we don't trust him. If there's not that depth of relationship, how do we cultivate that? I keep going back to this Ephesians 3 prayer that God would strengthen us to know where he would give us power to grasp the, the fullness, the height, width, breadth, and length of God's love for us. That to me is a regular prayer. I, I want to know that. And that's not something I'm going to get on my own. So God, would you give me power to grasp that, to know this love that surpasses knowledge? I want to know that. I want to live out of that love. That's the Abba Father thing. And that's something for, that's available to all of us, that depth and intimacy of relationship. You're not going to surrender to somebody if you don't have confidence in their ability to get to, to handle it. Everything is possible for you. Jesus acknowledges Father, you, you can do whatever. You can do whatever. All of it. There's nothing that's too difficult for you to do. Again, that's something that intellectually we know, but do you live? Everything is possible for your Father. Not for some far-off, distant God. Everything is possible for your Father. Are you aware of that? Do you have confidence in His ability to manage whatever the situation is? Do you have confidence in his ability to see you or your loved ones through whatever the situation is? Do you have confidence in his ability to bring beauty from ashes? Do you have confidence in his ability to work all things for good? Do you have confidence in his ability to redeem whatever the mess is that you're in the middle of? That genuinely, not theoretically. Do you have confidence in his ability? If you don't, you won't surrender to him. And why would you? Why would anybody surrender to somebody who's incompetent. None of us are going to do that. If we don't have confidence in his abilities, we're not going to surrender to him. Again, that's, there's, a, there's a, a, an element of this. It's just time. It's time spent. It's four-hour wilderness chunks. It's time spent, week in and week out, getting to know him better through the word and directly through prayer, in worship and in relationship with other people, taking steps of faith that are scary at the time and seeing him come through. And then he, he begins to develop a track record in your life. I can trust him. 
I can, I can look back. That's why we do this thankful for thing. It's to say, look back. Where did he work? And hopefully that propels you forward. The way you see him working in October, hopefully that propels you forward in faith in November to trust him more deeply and to trust him more fully. It, it's a track. Again, he's, he's building a resume for life. It's not a great word. A track record in our lives of being trustworthy for us. Does he have that for you? And then ultimately, and this is hard for many of us, we're not going to surrender to him. We won't surrender to him. We can't surrender to him if we haven't expressed our desires first. If you can't or won't articulate what you actually want in a situation, take this cup from me. You're never going to be able to surrender. You're always going to be holding on. You're either going to grow resentful or most likely you're just going to withdraw. There has to be this place, and this is hard for some of us. It feels selfish. or I, I, that one's a, That's a hard one for me, but that's one I hear a lot. We have four kids. We started talking the other day, hey, what, what do you want for Christmas? If, what, if, if one of my kids said, well, I really want for Christmas is I want you to give my sibling this. Well, that's sweet. It is. But we can do both. We can do both. And our resources are limited. I don't, I don't, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be a hero. I want to know what you want. God's resources are unlimited, infinite. Him working in your life doesn't mean he's not going to work in somebody else's. You're not taking somebody's turn. Are you asking? Are you saying, this is what I genuinely want? You don't have 24 Gethsemane moments in your life, but you're going to have a handful There's going to be a handful of times and most likely you're not going to be expecting them. And you're going to get thrown into a spot like this. Everything is spinning. And in those moments, that's not to scare you. That's just the reality of life. Many of you have lived long enough. You've already experienced one or two of these. And in that moment, can you call on your Abba Father? Is there depth of relationship there? Do you trust him? Are you confident in his ability to superintend your life, to work through whatever the circumstances are, to guide you, to lead you, to protect you, to watch over you? And in that moment, are you willing to say, this is what I want? This is what I want. You're never going to be able to get to yet. That's a big word, isn't it? Yet. The reason Jesus says yet is because he's already said, this is what I want. But, nevertheless, yet, not my will, but your will. We jump straight there. We don't do that that relational, spiritual work beforehand. And it's trite. It's not worked all the way into the depths of our heart. Super interesting story. You can go back and read it. Genesis 32. Jacob, who up to this point in his life, he's a jerk is what it looks like to me. An arrogant, selfish jerk. You may read him different. God is calling him back home. He ran away 20 years prior to Genesis 32. And the reason he ran away is because he stole his older brother Esau. They're twins, but Esau's first born. He steals his blessing, which to us it's like, really? But huge deal. The words of a father really set destiny for people. And Jacob steals it from Esau. Every good thing that his father Isaac 
can give. He gives it all to Jacob, who stole it. He, he disguised himself with his mother's help of like Esau. And Isaac, who at that point is half blind, thinks it's Esau. And so he gives him this Jacob, the second born, the blessing of the firstborn. And so Jacob runs away. Because he's like, and when Esau finds out, he's going to kill me. And he's probably, he's going to kill you. So he's gone for 20 years. And then God calls him back home. And he's scared to death. Because he doesn't know what Esau is going to do. And he's got this huge, you can read it, Genesis 31 and 32. He creates this huge scheme. Here's how I'm going to make sure that Esau is okay before he sees me. He's going to bribe him. Send him a, he, he puts this long line of livestock in front of him. It's all for Esau. Livestock space, livestock space, livestock space, livestock space. So it's this parade. But that night before he takes that trip, this is so weird. And uh, it says Jacob wrestles with a man, but the man is God, if you can imagine, somehow. And most interesting, I think it's verse 25. God, this man, could not overcome Jacob. What? He's omnipotent. What do you mean? He it's one guy. What do you mean he couldn't overcome him? But that's what it says. He could not overcome him. So he touches his hip and gives him a limp. Such an interesting picture there. What does it mean for God to not be able to overcome? What does it mean for us to wrestle with him? There's an invitation there to us to deeper relationship. The reason God can't overcome Jacob is because it would violate the things that are fundamental to God's relationship with us, the freedom that he's given us and his love for us. What he won't do is change Jacob's will. He won't. He won't. He wants Jacob to surrender, to submit. Jacob spent his whole life working and scheming to take care of himself. And what God is saying is, will you finally trust me? Finally. Will you stop trying to do everything on your own? Will you Trust me. Let me give you a limp to remind you that you need me. You're limping. You're not running away from your brother with a limp. You're limping. You're not going to beat him in a fight with a limp either. You need me. Will you trust me? Jacob has to surrender. By its very nature, surrender has to be voluntary to be genuine. So when we read God can't, it's in the, the economy of the way he works with us. It's just like he can't make you surrender. He can't. He desires. He longs. He pursues. He wrestles. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe invites you into that depth of relationship. He doesn't just say, take it or leave it. You want to wrestle? Let's wrestle. Jesus, three hours in the garden. Jacob all night. By a river. He's not afraid of you. And you don't have to be afraid of him. It's not where some of you are. But it's exactly where some of you are. You're in a Gethsemane moment. The invitation from the Lord is to wrestle with him. Trust. We talked about covenant a few weeks ago. What does it mean? God said, think about this. God says to you, everything I've got is yours. 
It's Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. What does he say to the older brother, which is who most of us are? It's all yours. Everything I've got. That's what it means to be in a covenantal relationship with him. Everything we have is his, and everything he has is ours. Who comes out on the better end of that deal? He's inviting us in. We want to get to a place of surrender. We can't surrender until we're willing to say, this is what I want. What I want more than anything is to be healed, for my business to work, to hear your voice again, for my kids to be saved. What is it? Will you say that to him? Will you wrestle with him through that? He may give you a limp because he loves you and he wants to remind you of your need for him. All right. We're going to take communion. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The mystery that communion is, it's not just a a ritual. We're not just remembering. There's mystery here where we can actually engage with God's presence. It's a doorway to God's grace, which is difficult for us how bread and juice can somehow be that, but it is. And so we want to take it that way. We want to acknowledge as we come forward and break off bread and dip it in juice. We also have gluten-free bread here. We want to say, God, this is a, I'm taking this as an outward sign, an outward expression of this inward desire to receive more of your grace. And we all need it. All of us need his grace at a greater level. And I do believe there's at least a handful of y'all who are in a Gethsemane moment. And I want to invite you, if you're willing, I know it can be tricky, I want to invite you. We'll have prayer teams up here. Let these guys pray for you. They can't fix anything. But they'll stand with you and pray with you that you can wrestle with God. And get to that place where Jesus got in the garden. You may have to sweat blood. You may leave with a limp. I don't know. But you get to a place of full and complete surrender. And there's peace that comes. Even when there's all kinds of wickedness going on. All kinds of trial. All kinds of tribulation. There's a peace that comes. Once you've fully surrendered. And again, we can't fully surrender. Until we first acknowledge our own desires. Until we trust the one that we're surrendering to until we're confident in his ability to take care of things. All right. If you're helping, if you come forward with communion and with ministry, I thought this may be a, a, um, a way of kind of walking into communion. So this is Isaiah 53. And so it's a, uh, Jesus is walking this out during his, from Gethsemane on through his um, crucifixion. And, and so I, just, I want us to stand and I want us to read this out loud together as a way of focusing our hearts and our minds on him. And then all I'm going to say is, is amen. And then I want you guys to, Kim will cue you and you can come forward and take communion. And again, get prayer from these guys if you're in one of those, if for anything, but certainly if you're in one of those Gethsemane moments. So let's, let's, let's read this together. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, 
nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor is there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 